0: This week, we sat down with Andrew Sweetnam, a PhD student in the social gerontology program at McMaster University and the Health and Aging Department, and a community development worker at Compass Community Health Centre in Hamilton, Ontario. In both his research and career pursuits, he's shown a strong interest in food security and the social determinants of health. He tells us about his unique educational and career journey which started in kinesiology and led to a passion for enhancing food security while bringing in his perspectives on health systems. Listeners also get the opportunity to learn about the important approach community health centers take in patient care while learning about the role of interdisciplinarity in this line of work. Stay tuned to listen to Andrew's thought-provoking perspectives and also for his advice to students. Hello, Andrew. Would you be able to introduce yourself to our listeners?
1: Hi, yeah, my name is Andrew Sweetnam. I am a uh, first-year PhD student at McMaster in the uh, social gerontology stream, which is in uh, McMaster's Health and Aging Department. Uh, And I am also a community development worker um, at Compass Community Health. And there I focus on uh, food security for a variety of uh, community members, including older adults and, and kids.
2: Awesome, thank you so much for your intro, Andrew. So you mentioned that you work in a community health center. Could you el- elaborate a little bit on that and their approach to patient care?
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, like our CEO at, uh, at Compass always says, community health centers are like one of the best ke- best kept secrets in healthcare, and I would totally agree. Because prior to working at a community health center, I had never heard about it. But in being exposed to that model, I was it really aligned with my my values because the approach that they take is um, so at the core is primary care. So you've got your suite of uh, doctors and nurses that attend to you know patients' primary care needs. But this is surrounded by a number of different services that that support clients in a variety of ways. So overall, the approach that community health centers take is. um, a social determinants of health approach to, to patient care. And so an example of some of the different teams that exist at Compass are, you have a mental wellness team, we have a health and wellness team that does more so like the musculoskeletal phys- uh, physiotherapy side of things, uh, rehabilitation as well. And then there's uh, social support workers, uh, peer support workers, and then um, myself, the team that I'm on is uh, the health promotion team. So promote, taking a, a preventative and promotion approach to, uh, sorry, health promotion approach to healthcare. So rather than solely focusing on the curative aspects of, of uh, health, which I think you know the, the current medical model uh, emphasizes cure. Um, so attending your, your physician uh, in order to receive a cure for an ailment, and then you're sort of uh, um, left to your own devices, for lack of a better term. The uh, community health center model is uh, takes an interdisciplinary approach to to healthcare, whereby primary care is surrounded by a suite of services that can support uh, clients, and the team meets on a on a regular basis, uh, so that everyone knows. Who who is offering specific services. So for example, like the health promotion team attends primary care meetings on a monthly basis to let them know what sorts of activities we're up to and how we can support clients um, that they may see.
0: Thank you so much for providing that overview of what community health centers may look like. At least for myself, I wasn't aware of community health centers until you had mentioned them in one of our classes. And so I think it's really important for students to know about these things, especially because when you consider the fact that in school and health science programs, we learn about the role of interdisciplinarity in healthcare, But these centers are where this interdisciplinary nature of care actually comes to fruition and is in practice for patients. And so it's really, really interesting. And so... You talked about health promotion, and some of the research that you do is in food security and looking at food security as a social determinant of health. And so would you be able to elaborate a little bit about the work that the Community Health Center does for promoting food security or understanding how food security um, works as a social determinant of health?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. The... I guess taking a step back a little bit back to the community health center model, it's often aimed at individuals who face barriers to health care. And, you know, the reasons that folks face barriers are there's a whole variety of reasons. And those are, are typically known as the social determinants of health. So income, education, you know the environment that you live in, the social uh, the social context as well. Those are all important factors that that play a play a key role in individual health outcomes. So the community health center model acknowledges those. And with that said, a lot of those factors impact access to food. So there's this concept known as uh, food deserts. So where you're physically located, you might not have access to. Uh, you know, wholesome, nutritious food. And then, you know, from an educational standpoint as well, if you're not aware of what foods are are good for you or where to find them or even how to prepare them, then, you know, that places you at a little bit of a disadvantage beyond this access piece, which, um, and food security is often tied to income, whereas, which is definitely, you know, a key factor. But I think we need to look be, be beyond income a lot of the times to to make sure folks have the, the awareness and the skills to access those uh foods uh in addition and prepare them in addition to uh, you know the financial means and so the definition of of food security i mean there's there's a number of different definitions but it's it's uh, the def- definition that i like and i think the canadian government also supports this it, which is um access to wholesome nutritious foods that are culturally appropriate and socially, culturally and socially appropriate. So in my experience, at least, I found that there's a huge emphasis on the access piece. And often we we glance over the, the social and the cultural aspects uh, of food. I think that's often forgotten as an important uh, element in food security. And there's this concept or... I guess they call it the Rosetto effect. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but there was this town in Italy called Rosetto. And there's this group of individuals who, uh, who moved from Rosetto, Italy to, I believe it was a, it's like rural Pennsylvania. And it was such a large grouping of them that eventually they renamed the town Rosetto. And within the, this, the, the state of Pennsylvania, they, this group of people stood out as having remarkably good uh, heart health so I believe cardiovascular disease is one of, one of the number one killers in the States and Rosetto stood apart because they, they had great heart health. So some researchers looked into uh, the reasoning behind that. And, you know, lots of folks will point, point to, to diet, you know, the Italian Mediterranean diet, but Bearing in mind that these people were in uh, Pennsylvania, they didn't have access to the uh, the olive oil that everybody knows has great uh, health benefits. What they found was that the the benefits were actually coming from interactions within the community. So uh, the social engagement between people, everybody knowing each other's name, being able to rely on your neighbor for something. If you needed some sugar, you can knock on on somebody's door. And with that said, their diet was actually not that great in terms of what I'd say the let's say the uh, American Dietetic Association would call a good diet. They had a, food, a diet that was high in fat, lots of salty foods. They, uh, they you know they cured meats to preserve them, like they would do in Italy. Um, again, they didn't have that olive oil, so they fried uh, their foods in uh, in lard and <laughs> animal fat, which you know uh, if you were to go to a dietitian today, they would definitely not recommend that, especially for heart health. So I feel like that story of Rosetto has made me realize that food is a lot more than just its nutritional components. and we also we often just look to getting good food in people's hands. But I feel like there's there's a lot more to food than just the ingredients that are in the food. It's also you know who you share the food with, uh, how you consume that food, uh, whether whether you're you know even chewing your food, you know makes a huge difference into like how it's digested in your body. So, so yeah, so I guess back to the social determinants of health there, they exist beyond you know, the, the access piece, there's the social component, there's, you know, whether you live in a food desert and like, if, if the closest thing to, to you is like a, a gas station and that's your main source of food, of course, those are, those are issues that need to be addressed. And with, uh, with what we do at, at Compass, we, we try to, enable individuals to to take control of their health through uh, largely through education and promotion, at least on my end of things, from the food security standpoint. Uh, And we do that through offering nutritional classes or teaching individuals how to cook. Uh, We also have quite a bit of garden space out in front of the health center as well as a greenhouse on site, where we offer programming for kids and for older adults, teaching them about where food comes from. And so that touches on the the educational component of of social determinants of health. Lots of kids, uh, you know, I've worked with kids for quite a while now, even before the health centre. And it's surprising (laughs) to know that some kids don't know where a tomato comes from. Or if you were to ask them, the, the, the answer is often the grocery store. So we're like, we're very much disconnected from our food. I find, I found at least in our culture, we've, we've moved away from, from that. So, so we try and focus, you know, the, the income piece is definitely hard to, um, to address, you know, there's the powers that be are a little bit greater, but something we do offer is called the good food box, which is a, you know, it's a reduced cost program for wholesome, nutritious, uh, raw ingredients. And then we offer classes as well as as I was mentioning.
0: Thank you so much, Andrew. That was definitely very interesting, and we appreciate the analogy as well that you gave. So, with everything that's been said, it's it seemingly or it is evidently very important for students that are trying to learn about the different components of the healthcare system, and for those who want to go into healthcare as a field to to learn about how food security and health promotion, as, as you said, impacts population health. So what would you say is important for students to, for the takeaway for students to be and what it's important for, for them to keep learning in order to increase their knowledge on this?
1: I'd say the uh, understanding, I guess, the, the historical roots of the, um, you know, if we're talking about healthcare it would be um, the medical system. Where like how it developed into so like allopathic medicine is is the main form of medicine. It's viewed as as the gold standard, and within that is this biomedical model of of health. And I think it would be important for students to understand where that comes from, why that happened, and what the results of that were. So thinking it was in like 1910 or something like that, there, there was like the Flexner report came out where. Essentially, there was this. Uh, so, I believe it was the Germans had this uh, like a very rationalized approach to healthcare. So, that's like measuring, calculating in order to see what would happen with the body. And so, the Flexner report then established these key criteria for what medical schools should focus on. And as a result of that, plus, I guess, the um, social and political context at the time as well as a specific group of people which were socially advantaged, white males receiving university education. They received, I guess, political favor such that the allopathic medicine became the main form of of medicine. And at that point in time, you know, homeopathic medicine uh, existed and, you know, essentially was on the borderline of eradicated after the, the Flexner report. And that very much still, those historical roots shape what medicine looks like today. Such that, you know, one of the books that that we read for uh, one of our courses by Pat and Hugh Armstrong, they talk about the engineering model of the body, where the body is broken down into uh, its key components. And every aspect of the body has a, a physician that specializes in that aspect of the body. And these are all... Separate individuals that don't necessarily talk to each other. So, if you got your cardiologist, for example, what's specializing on your heart you know, on your heart, it probably doesn't talk to your psychiatrist, who you know knows more about your mental health. However, there's definitely relationships between stress, mental health, and and your heart. Um, so that you know that's one example. And um, an additional component to that is because of this curative approach that we were talking about earlier, your your psychiatrist, for example, wants to wants you to get better or wants to alleviate your depression, let's say, for example, and your, your cardiologist wants to improve your heart health. And more than likely, what they're going to do is prescribe uh, a drug in order for you to, to, to feel better or to alleviate that symptom. And I think as a result of this, polypharmacy has increased, lots of uh, drugs being prescribed for uh, by multiple doctors especially as i think over the age of 65 they found that poly- polypharmacy goes up and doctors act- who prescribe more drugs uh, have been found to have shorter uh, medical visits with their patients so that kind of speaks to the the ethos of medicine i think right now which is very much based in and even in the hospitals one of the key outcomes is uh, uh, you know how many days is somebody in the hospital? And they wanna reduce that amount of time as much as possible to reduce costs, et cetera. So this, this approach on focusing on a cure, uh, it skews me- the, the approach to medical care in my opinion, and it has historical roots. So without understanding this, I feel like students, and it's taken me a long time to, I guess, to, to realize this, because initially, you know, I viewed medical uh, expertise as the gold standard and would never really question, you know, something that a doctor said. Uh, And I think a lot of folks still think in that way. And this is not to say that, you know, medical expertise is not valid. It certainly is. And, you know, there's been leaps and bounds that have happened in, you know, medical science and nutritional science as well. That's led us to, to where we're at right now. However, it's, it's created this environment that alternatives to medicine are basically unthinkable. You know, it was viewed as quackery for a long time. And, you know, a personal anecdote is I recently moved and uh, got a new doctor and I also started to see a naturopath. So the intake uh, process was happening at the same time and they were drastically different. My intake with my doctor was maybe like, I don't know a dozen questions that were all about, you know, my body, my medical history, my family's history. And I think it t- they took some of my blood and my, nat- with my naturopath, it was an hour long conversation to the point that he asked me if I had a dog, did I, you know, like to go for walks? Like he really tried to understand who I was as a person. And I feel like that's important as well in understanding the social determinants of health, rather than focusing on specifically curing an issue, it's understanding the, the root causes and viewing the, the body like holistically. And I feel like, again, circling back to your question around the students, if you don't understand the historical roots of why we are where we are, you can't begin to question the system and improve upon the system because you, you'll continue operating in the ways that, that kind of form this the status quo that we've become used to.
2: Thank you for sharing that, Andrew. We're gonna switch some gears and talk on your journey to where you are today. So what led you to pursuing your PhD studies and what sparked your interest in the field of food security?
1: Yeah, I I took a little bit of a roundabout path to come where I am. So I'll try and keep it as brief as possible. But I, uh, I went to school for kinesiology at york university and then my aim around my second or third year was to go to to medical school with my eyes on medical school uh, i decided a little bit late so i chose to improve my marks by going to to do my master's and i just chose any master's program i could (laughs) kind of get into and i lined it up uh, doing my master's in biomechanics also at york university and uh, upon graduating I, well, actually while I was in my, my master's, I realized that this uh, the freedom, I guess that came with graduate studies, it was something I really liked uh, the freedom that kind of came with research rather than, you know, enlisting myself for, you know, approximately a decade of schooling um, with, with medicine. So I chose to kind of stick it, stick it out and finish my master's and was offered a job after, after graduating with a private research company. And I worked there for a little while. But then, kind of recognized that that I had an, an inner calling, or lack of a better way of uh, uh, framing it, that this this w- w- the job wasn't meeting my need, and then uh, so I chose to leave that job and go to uh, to teach in uh, Southeast Asia, and so there I taught uh, health and science to grade six and seven students in uh, in uh, rural Thailand, and while I was there, I. Uh, Found my love for food. Uh, I was a li- initially a little bit uh, concerned about uh, the amount, like the starch-based diets, because you know I very much had this rationalized view of food where you know carbs are bad; they'll cause you to gain weight. Um, and you know, in Asian culture, they eat so much rice. How's my body going to react to that? And I was arguably eating more food there than I was eating in Canada, and I lost weight which was uh, made me start to think about like, what's in the, what's in this food? Why is it, why is this happening? And uh, to, I guess, satiate that curiosity I signed up for to, as an intern at an organic farm in, uh, in Hamilton, actually, actually just outside of Hamilton in Town, Ontario. And so I spent a season there as an intern and learned all about organic food, growing soil, all that stuff. And that really piqued my interest in, in food. And uh, I was, Shortly after that, I got a job working for the Hamilton Victory Gardens, which is um, a non-for-profit organization that grows food for food banks and uh, hot meal programs in Hamilton. Uh, And so I helped manage the Victory Gardens for about three seasons. And then I pivoted to my position that I currently hold at Compass as a community development worker. So my roots have always been in health and understanding is how the body works and what makes the body healthy. And initially, I had never really thought about food as being, you know, this crucial factor in in health. And I guess through my journey, recognize that it's not actually just only the ingredients, you know, the ingredients are certainly important. But you know, the social, cultural context of food also lend themselves to, you know, your individual health outcomes. And that's sort of what's shaped how I, how I approach my work at, at Compass.
2: Wow, that's it's a very interesting journey. And it's amazing to see just how different opportunities have just shaped your path and led you to where you are today. And so moving on to looking at your PhD research, we're curious to know uh, if you could speak a little bit about it and uh, what you're studying.
1: Yeah, for sure. I guess being so early in the PhD, it's sort of still to be determined. But being in the social gerontology stream, and um, as I mentioned, you know, my passionate around uh, passion around food, it will have to do something with food, health, and aging. But uh, a paper that I did for for one of my classes that I'm actually hoping to get published was around the provision of food in long term care facilities. How um, you know, COVID has you know shined a spotlight on how I guess the the issues that exist in long-term care in in Canada and Ontario as well. And so uh, the approach that I took in in the paper was doing a qualitative content analysis of the the regulations and legislations that exist around food provision in Ontario's Long-Term Care Homes Act. And uh, what I found was, so I broke it down into three categories meal access, meal quality, and meal experience. And that stems from a model from uh, Heather Keller, who's done a lot of research uh, on the provision of food in long-term care and how to improve food intake. Because uh, an important, I guess, factor here is that approximately 50% of individuals who live in long-term care homes are, are malnourished. And so that's, of course, a huge statistic. So Dr. Keller was looking into how how to increase food intake in uh, long-term care facilities and came up with these three categories. So meal quality, meal time experience, and, uh, and then the access to, to food as well. And so what I found in uh, doing the qualitative content analysis of the Long-Term Care Act was that there was a very heavy reliance on access to food so ensuring that meals are provided at a specific time and that they meet a certain criteria in terms of, uh, you know, dietary like content. Uh, so they, they use the uh, dietary reference intakes. And so they must meet these standards. And the way that, I guess, outcomes are measured in terms of uh, individuals residing in long-term care is changes in body weight. That's the, that's the main way that they, they address, you know, issues that surround food and nutrition. And so that that actually made up the bulk of the, the nutritional section of the Long-Term Care Act. There was a little, there was a small focus on meal quality, but it was just essentially that like, you know, the temperature is correct. So that's more of a risk mitigation thing than it is like around in, the enjoyment of food. And then the third category was the mealtime experience, which essentially, you know, the, the, the warmest provision in there was that there's comfortable chairs and that, that's about it but it was very heavily skewed on the access side of things. And so in this realize that, you know, the legislations and regulations do not recognize the social and cultural aspects of food for individuals or older adults res- residing in long-term care. And that there needs to be a shift in making food a central part of uh, health well-being, but also the social aspect of, of, uh, of living in a long-term care facility. Because food is something that people look forward to. And lots of adults residing in, um, in long-term care, it's not the, it's the highlight of the day. But in some cases, the food that's provided is pretty bad. <laughs> and as a result, you know, lots of people don't eat that food. And actually, you know, an audit was done. And despite these dietary requirements that are, are set forth that need to be met, they're often not met. And, you know, funding has a big part to do with that. Lots of uh, long-term care facilities outsource uh, their food services. So they, you know, try and find the, the best contract. So, uh, you know, financial, finances come into, play, come into play. And as a result, you know, this impacts the, the service and the quality of the food. So that's, that's an area of research that sort of emerged through my coursework that I've become um, increasingly interested in. So I think I'd like to focus on that. And another aspect that I'm becoming a little bit more interested in that I'm hoping to work with my supervisor, uh, Dr. James DeLette, on is um, the oral histories of food. So one of the programs I do at Compass is called Senior's Kitchen. It's uh, where a group of older adults come together. We share a meal and then we all cook uh, communally in, in the kitchen that's on site. And through doing this for three years now, I've heard so many stories about people's upbringing and what food was like, you know, growing up on a farm, how their mom used to make X, Y, Z. And I found that stuff fascinating. And I feel like our generation is at an interesting intersection of uh, having access to this cultural wealth of information that if not preserved and passed on could potentially disappear because again back to these kids that I'm um, I'm taught uh, that that we offer programming for lots of them again have no idea where food comes from and potentially don't have an interest in in learning and so in my opinion at least I I feel as though preserving these oral histories around food would be important to share uh, you know the wealth of knowledge that
2: exists. Thank you, Andrew, for for sharing your interest in the research field and what you're looking to sort of investigate in your PhD. So what do you hope to gain from your PhD and um, how do you think this will complement your current or future work uh, that you would potentially like to pursue?
1: Um, understood, I guess the the importance of developing community, but I think through my PhD, I'll get a better understanding of the social, economic, political systems that exist around health and aging and how you know the intersections of these impact individual health outcomes. And I feel as though in gaining a better understanding of this, I'll be able to, I guess through programming or or partnerships or innovations, be able to provide better access to socially and culturally appropriate foods for older adults and just individuals who, who face barriers.
0: Thanks for sharing that, Andrew. I think like that type of work is just so, so important. And so it's encouraging to hear that there's individuals that are pursuing these paths to bettering our systems and health promotion, healthcare for all. We're going to take kind of a different approach or a different direction with our questions now because we want to get more of an understanding of your opinion on the importance of interdisciplinarity in patient care, given that you work in an interdisciplinary team at your community health center. And we also want to know how the roles of different professionals at the community health center complement each other.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I I feel as though, or like a little bit earlier in the interview, I kind of touched a little bit on the importance of uh, the interdisciplinary teams that exist in, in the context of uh, community health uh, care uh, or centers, sorry. And I guess maybe one of the, a, a nice way to, to frame the importance of it is with a story. I like to tell stories. <laughs> so I was at work one day and I received a phone call from somebody that was on the mental, mental health team. And she asked me to come over to her office. And uh, when, I went out, when I went over, there was this, I guess, individual who had come from, I don't remember, he was Spanish speaking. I believe he came from South America and been in Canada for a few years. And he was so, I guess, distraught with the North American way of life. And it was so starkly different from his, uh, his upbringing that it had caused you know a series of mental health issues. Um, that had been leading to physical health issues as well and so one of the aspects of of his uh, I guess upbringing in South America that he missed the most was was gardening so she called me we had a quick conversation and said hey Andrew can you do anything to to support our client and so um, I was able to find him a garden plot and you know within you know two to three weeks he was gardening outside and, you know, had a kind of abundant garden that year. And so I feel as though typically if you were to go to see, you know, a, a social worker, um, you know, they'll refer you to, you know, a community garden or something like that if, if that was a need that you expressed. But the inter- dis- interdisciplinary team is is amazing in my opinion because you can call somebody by name and say, hey, I know you offer this service. Are you able to support, our client, not my client, our client. And so that's, that's, a, that's uh, a very different way of approaching health. And something, I guess, uh, additionally, with our physicians, they're not billed by, uh, by patient, they're salaried. So they also take a very different approach to health. Such that they would, you know, take the time to engage with other me- members of other teams to find out how they best can support their clients or, or the patients that they see. And, you know, we, we have a learning week every week where all, um, all staff block off their entire calendar for a full week and we get to know each other a little bit better. You know, you're sitting at a, di- at a table with a different group of people every day and doing activities together. So there's very much a focus on on teams and uh, like team building. And again circling back to that story, if you're able to to call somebody, you know, by name, have a meeting with them um, immediately essentially in order to support somebody, it, it often I think and again in my opinion helps uh, prevent individual individuals from uh, falling through the gaps.
0: That was a really good story. I think it highlighted the importance of interdisciplinarity, and it's just important for patients to, to not be falling through these gaps. So to have those teams in place where there's a continuity of care is so important. And So thank you for sharing that. Now we'd like to ask what kind of resources or opportunities do you think students should pursue to prepare themselves if they are interested in learning more about the, a social approach to health um, or working at a community health center, for example?
1: Yeah, I think, I guess, yeah, understanding, I guess, the social context of how yeah, healthcare and healthcare delivery is, is shaped is really important. So I guess thinking back to my first year of kinesiology, I had to take a class called sociology and sport, and uh, I, I hated that class. <laughs> I I didn't understand why I had to take it until essentially almost a decade later, <laughs> Uh, and maybe that's just how I think and operate. Um, you know, I came in to, to learn about the body, how it works, how to exercise, exercise more efficiently, how to be as healthy as possible. And so, why do they need to understand the sociology around sport? And so, uh, yeah, I would encourage a lot of individuals who are pursuing healthcare to, uh, again, engage with the, the historical roots of, of whatever profession that they're endeavoring to, to take part in and uh, understand it from a social context as well. What social factors shape how your profession looks like, uh, why, how and why your profession looks the way uh, it does.
0: If you had any advice for prospective healthcare students, what would it be?
1: So uh, I feel as though it would be important to, I guess, from my own personal experience, uh, the pursuit of your passions. So I, I entered my undergraduate degree with my eyes on medical school, but as as we've kind of covered throughout this uh, this interview, I definitely deviated from that path. And you know, while I was working as an intern on an organic farm, everybody in my family was like, "What is Andrew doing?" You know, you go from being a master student to wanting to be a farmer. It's quite quite the pivot. But I believe that if you pursue your passions, life just has a way of lining up opportunities, and I could you know, a decade ago, never would have imagined myself being where I am. Uh, However, as a result of that, I've, uh, I feel as though I found the job. Um, And, you know, in the area of research that I'm doing right now with school, there's, there's actually an opportunity for those two to now intersect both my academic and professional lives. So, I could never have dreamed of this opportunity, and I believe that it would not have happened if I didn't stay true and listen to my passion, that inner calling to just up and leave, <laughs> as crazy as that might sound sometimes. But feel that we have those 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 feelings, those thoughts, and those just those desires for a reason. And if you stay true to them and you honor them, sometimes you might not know what life uh, holds ahead of you. And you know, I'm a planner. I love to plan, but uh, you know, there was definitely solid three to five years of my life where I, I did not know what was a- ahead of me in the journey but again like, as I was saying I could never have planned for where I'm at right now and uh, as a result of that I'm, I'm extremely happy.
0: Thank you so much that advice is so important especially for like students that are going to be listening to this uh, just because it's hard to, to pivot from your path and sometimes to follow your passions but like hearing from people that are experienced such as yourself is is inspiring for us and it's encouraging for us. So thank you so much for sharing all the information that you shared and educating us on community health centers and food security and the social determinants of health. This was a very enjoyable interview for us.
1: Awesome. Thank you. Anna. Thank you for having me. This was it was a lot of fun. I, I definitely enjoyed, uh, you know, the questions that you put together were excellent as well. They were like very thought provoking. So I, I appreciate the, the effort that you guys put into. So thank you.
0: And that concludes our interview with Andrew. A big thank you to Andrew for providing insight into the important concept of food security and educating listeners about the patient-centered approach of community health centers, along with the many other interesting perspectives he shared.